0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Grange TV. As always, we have with us the other half of this great podcast, Mr. David Roberts, TAFE extraordinaire. Um, before we start, I just want to say a massive thank you to um, all the guys from the the Discord. Um, honestly, they, they're they so supportive and, and uh, a lot of the guys, I don't even know if they're part of the Discord or not, but they, um, they follow on social media and they follow on... Um, and support the podcast in general and uh like all the memes and that, that oh, i can't do them i don't even know how to do it they're the ones that do it all and um they're the ones that when like was we we obviously like everywhere else in the world um with COVID, it was hard for us to um get the place to be able to do this and da 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 da, da. and you know at times it was like oh fuck i'm not going to do this now it's too much work but um they were incredibly supportive they set up the reddit ama they, they you know, um, Lydian from Instagram, he's the guy that set up the Reddit MMA. So shout out to him and shout out to every single guy on the Discord for, for helping out and supporting for so long. So I just wanted to say that.
1: The fights over the weekend, you had Weidman. And correct me if I'm wrong, did Weidman come back to middleweight? Yeah, he
0: came back to yeah, middleweight.
1: So what was your feels on him coming back to middleweight and how the fight played out?
0: I think Weidman… Like is very very. Da- I think he's st- he's very very dangerous. I think his style he's, he's probably after Rob. Of course, is probably my favorite fighter at middleweight. Um, I've always always go for for Weidman. Um, I think his style is a style that that requires a lot a lot of energy. You know, because he's he's pretty much going to try and grapple you and get you on the ground. And he's so dangerous when he when he does a big guy that can grapple and he's technically so good the guy he fought though that amari guy he he grew up wrestling you know in dagestan and he he can he's very strong and he hits very hard and so um that probably was a matchup that um was a difficult one for Wideman. a good wrestler with good stand up and good overall knowledge you know a lot of experience he's, he's fought a lot that guy as well um and he's fought at welterweight he's fought at middleweight you know he's uh Master of sport in hand to hand combat, if I'm not mistaken, and I think a master of sport in um, Combat Sambo. Well, I could have something wrong there, maybe I said something wrong, but I also know that he was, he grew up wrestling, so he grew up doing freestyle wrestling as well. And those guys from Dagestan, their wrestling, their level's high, very, 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 very high. Like even a guy that like, hasn't won nationals or anything like that, was, their, their, their wrestling level's still super high.
1: Okay, So there was some chat around like the third round where Weidman couldn't put in a lock. Have you got your thoughts around that and some of the feedback why it was why he couldn't do it or
0: why, why Weidman couldn't finish the choke. Yep man, like I'm sure Weidman knows how to finish head arm chokes, you know what I mean for, for you know people are saying that you know like when we made the the whole omelette sort of thing like before we spoke about, like if you want to know what, it's like, man, it's like you you doing weights and then running as fast as you can. And then trying to, and then when you're exhausted, you've been punched in the face, then you're trying to to, to squeeze someone. Your, your arms literally have no squeeze left. And um it's very, very, very hard to get that position um and be able to finish a guy that knows that it's coming, because Omari knew it was coming. He's getting his arm back in to stop the the, the so this arm's being choked, and he's getting this arm back in to, to sort of um to stop it, to alleviate it and to be able to get position um the fact that Weidman was able to keep position they were both exhausted the pace that they fought at your arms like your hands you literally can't like close your hands you can't when you're that exhausted when you're that tired just can't put anything together you know it's very 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 hard but he he was very very smart because he kept the position for the whole round and he never lost the position and he did damage from the top and he won the round so I was was super impressed with Weidman I was and I was impressed with Omari too because Weidman, when he gets that snatch single on just about anyone, he gets him down. Just about anyone, and he was struggling to get Omari down. And that grind and that pace that they went out in the first and even in the second round, man, it's it's brutal. You know, big guys like that wrestling, grappling, not being able to finish the takedowns, having to reshoot that and shooting the double is what takes the most um, energy, the most strength. Um, and when you can't finish it, you don't get that chance to rest and then, for Weidman to be able to overcome that second round and then come back and win the third is very, very impressive because he was exhausted going into the going into the third, you know, so I was really impressed with Weidman, and I was really impressed with Omari as well
1: are you happy Weidman's back at middleweight w- happy in what way in terms of he how he pre- prepares for a fight. He's is it. Is he more physically inclined for middleweight, or you reckon he was more stronger at light middleweight?
0: Like, like uh, man, like he, w- when you see Weidman in real life, he's a big guy. He's a really big dude. And like Rob, like if you don't, if you've never seen Rob and you actually see him like up close, you, like a lot of these middleweights, you you fuck these guys are big. You know, again, like I said to you before, when people well, oh, Israel's not that big. When you when you're next to him, you, you've been next yeah. to him. Like Israel's a big guy. Like you look up, you know, you look up at him like that. and He's fucking tall, and his hands are like dinner plates. You know, so he. The, the, some of these guys are real big guys, and the problem is, I think when you go up to light heavyweight, um, a guy that like Weidman that's got like a grinding style that that is going to get you down, get on top of you, um, hold you down, and submit you. It's hard for you to do that. To bigger guys, you know what I mean. If you're a guy that maybe like Rob, someone like Rob who's fast, that's his game is is built on speed. Or Israel, that's you know built on timing as well and speed. They can they can do probably I think a little better in at light heavyweight because I think Wideman on top of your middleweight, if he gets on top of you like that, he's going to make life difficult for you. You saw when he fought Anderson, and Anderson had has very good jiu off his back. And Weidman was very hard for him to get off him. So, I mean, I, I I don't know. He's got good coaches. Who who am I? But I I like him at middleweight. Um, uh, for him, you know, I I think he's he's good at he's.
1: So what do you reckon's next for him?
0: I don't know. Hey, um, I think I'd like to see him against Brunson. Okay. I think that'd be an interesting fight. Um, that will put both of them uh, give both of them a clear indication of where they're at. I suppose um my that's me that's my opinion please insult me in the comments but like and subscribe if you're going to do it please i appreciate that um but i I, like you're asking me what i'd like to see not necessarily i I would like to see him fight brunson i think that that would be an interesting fight i think that's going to be brunson's a good wrestler a very good wrestler and he's got power in his hands i think chris is a little tidier with his hands um but it'll be an interesting, it'll be an interesting fight. I, I, I would like. That's a fight I'd like to see.
1: Awesome. So the main event, um, Lewis? Man,
0: it, like the, the thing is, there's, there's another example. Um, I can't say his name properly. Ole Nick. He, he. Um, that, that, that hold that he does. You know that scarf hold. Sure. People don't realize, man. Like Derek Lewis to get out of that. I'm so super impressed because like people look at it and they they like, when you go to do jujitsu class and they go, this is this escape is easy. And they show how to do, how to escape that that scarf hold, that headlock, whatever you want, the playground choke, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, you'll escape from another dude. Like yeah. it's a white belt. I guarantee you 99% of the people teaching how to escape that are not going to escape uh, Alexi's hold. Like there's no no fucking way in the world. I've got a mate. Um, he actually teaches at Bankstown, um, at the UFC gym at Bankstown. He's not a big guy. He's probably my size. Kurian Stojewski. Um, And he grew up in um, like a Soviet system and that and wrestling and everything. And he's a he's good, very good submission grappler. And if he gets you in that hold, I've seen him tap out a lot of guys, like a lot of good guys, not going to put him out there, but um, like they, they fucking crush you because it's a position that they've done since they're little kids, you know, and they, they've they got it down pat. Like Josh Barnett, when he tapped out Dean Lister with that, and you're going to tell me Dean Lister doesn't know how to grapple and doesn't know how to escape that. So for Derek Lewis to get out of that, I'm, I'm impressed, you know. It takes a lot of strength out of the person doing it, but, um, man, the, the amount of pressure it's put on your chest, on your neck, on, and you can't breathe. You just can't breathe. And their base is good. It's not like you're just going to. Like, pop them off like like you're doing it. When you go to your white belt class, you're taking another white belt off you. You're not taking, you know, a guy that's been wrestling and doing jiu-jitsu and grappling and doing sambo and, I don't know, running around with the Spetsna or whatever they do. You know, you're not taking those dudes off you. You're taking another white belt off you like that. So that hold is is fucking hard to get off. And then if if you can't finish Derek Lewis like that, he he's, he hits too hard and he's he's a monster and he looks in so much better shape.
1: Yeah. So what's his record now? It's the most KOs or something, but
0: Derek Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, I believe yeah. so. I believe so. He he just hits super hard. He, he, man, he he's I've seen him in real life too, and he is a monster. Like he's like, I didn't even want to make eye contact with him. He's like he's fucking huge, man.
1: Yeah he always has interesting posts comments posts, what I did think. he say he uh, says, uh, um i think this time i just need to take a shit i think last time his balls was hot now he just needed to take a shit
0: right at least he's honest, <laughs> least he's honest. <laughs> <laughs> and we know that now you know what i mean um no nah, and that's that's it um just a couple of real quick things i want to first and foremost congratulate mr jacob malcoon for signing with the UFC. He's um, Robert Whitaker's training partner uh, fighting out of Gracie Smith and Grange and uh, Stand Strong Boxing. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about Jacob's skill set. I'm going to, like with Rob, I'd rather people find out the hard way, but um, he has been on the podcast before. Uh, Jacob is the ADCC um, Asian Qualifiers Champion, so um, very, very good grappler, very, very, very good grappler. Uh, has won a bunch of jujitsu competitions. And uh, he has a pro boxing, undefeated pro boxing record as well as being undefeated as a pro MMA fighter. I'm really, 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 really looking forward to seeing this guy fight. Um, Yeah, so um, yeah, congratulations, Jacob. I also want to shout out Caleb and Jeffro Podcast. Um, If you get a chance to listen to these guys, um, please do. They're a couple of teenagers, one from, I believe, Perth and the other one from the Central Coast. And uh, they, they, Yeah, they've started a little podcast and they're doing really, really well. And um, I think they're going to have Alex Volkanovsky on there very, very soon. Alex has been um, on this podcast before and he's also the UFC uh, featherweight champion. I don't know which of th- those accomplishments he holds um, in higher regard, whether it's being on Grange TV or winning and defending the belt. I, I don't know. But um, I guess that's something you guys can ask him. Uh, uh, Caleb and Jeffrey. Um
1: So, um, fights on the weekend. The well, main event,
0: the Mircich and um, Cormier fight. fight. Well, what do you think?
1: Um, it's a tough one. Um, I think. Uh, I think DC in the last fight got a little bit lazy to the end, and he got clipped. Uh, and and sort of lost it. I reckon if DC keeps the same pace up, um, he's got it. And pretty much, I don't know about legacy, but does it stamp his, you know, self as uh, you know, he's already got a, a strong established legacy, but is, this makes him the greatest champion heavyweight. Uh, I, th-
0: I think either one of those guys could could stake their claim, but I, I think it's hard to compare. You know, we we're going to talk kind of off track, but I think it's hard to compare people outside of um, their era because I think when you see um, Fedor's run at heavyweight in Pride and, and all that, I, I think that was pretty amazing. And the guys that he beat at the time and how he beat them like when he beat Nogueira, because antonio Nogueira at the time was considered unbeatable you know more or less he was like you know, no one's going to beat this guy and then fedor came and beat him in emphatic uh, fashion you know so that to me is um it's hard to say who's the greatest ever per se but definitely one of the, either one of these guys in today's mma c- can say that, that they'd probably be right up there um I, don't, I can't give a prediction as to who's going to win because, you know, it's – you saw they've had two fights and they both went completely different. I think for for, for Mircic, he what I saw in the last fight that I didn't like, and this is – they've got great coaches, man. They've got unbelievable coaches and both those guys have proven everything they're going to prove. Um, but I think Mircic has to – put something in the middle distance between him and um, Cormier. I think uh, low kicks, yeah, of course, everyone's going to say he doesn't want to get taken down by Cormier, but he can mix up some low kicks, some foot stomps, uh, foot stomp, some knee stomps, and I think um, like uh, front snap kicks to the midsection will work very, very well at keeping um, DC away from him a little bit. John Jones did the, the leg stomps very well against Cormier. He, um, you saw Conor McGregor use the front snap kick against Chad Mendes very well. You see, uh, Max Holloway did with Volkanovski in the second fight in the first few rounds. He he did that very well. Rob against Romero, um, those kicks are very good. They're hard to catch for wrestlers as well because um, they're not they're not looping in and around. They come and they're not like teak kicks where the kicks out there. It's like a front snap kick that doesn't take a lot of energy, doesn't have a lot of tell, and you can't see where it's coming from. I think that. One that'll if if you hit the abdomen, it starts to slow the person down, but it also keeps him away and keeps Mircic at a at a range that he's more comfortable with. And then, you know, I'd like to see him use his jab a little bit. I'd like to see him. Mircich, do whatever you want. Don't um think I'd like to see him. Who the fuck am I? But um like I like seeing him use his jab. I think he's got really, really good boxing. He's a golden gloves boxer. So he's got a good amateur experience. And in, especially in amateurs, they reward the jab and that. So I'd like to see him, once he gains that distance, to start jabbing away, you know. Problem is, I think out of the two of them, DC's a little faster. I think he's got faster hands, but he's not – I don't think they're as tidy. Um, DC is a bull. Like if you see him in real life, he's like like a bull. He's like a bear. Um, And he's got fast hands and unbelievable wrestling. So what he does, he kind of like tries to tie you up, ties your hands up so he's in, within reach now and then he can hit you and then he gets a Greco-Roman collar hold and then he starts to work that dirty boxing and that very dangerous man. He hits very hard. He hits very fast and anywhere in that region he can also hit a takedown and he's extremely powerful. I've met Mircic as well and um, he's a lovely guy as well. He's a big dude, like a big – Strong man, you know, but DC is deceptively huge. Like he's a huge man. Like when you see him, he's not. I'm taller than him, and I'm just maybe six foot, and he's like short and thick, man. I can't explain how. Like you look at him, and he just looks powerful, and you know that if he hits you, you're staying hit. So I think they they the the thing that I like the most is. They've already fought twice. They've had two very different results. They both know what to do. It's not like anybody including myself is saying stuff that they don't know or their coaches don't know. It's just what happens in there and how do you implement your game plan and can you implement your game plan because sometimes you don't get a chance to, you know, or you know, it, it's it's interesting. I think that
1: So with that just say yeah. not to break your thought process. No, 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 please. Going third fight. They yeah, they've seen each other how do you from a coach's point of view how do you do a fight plan for that or or is it really who gets off on the day like as we spoke before it's like a fight's 50 50 like someone can get hit and that's it and if someone threw a second first or it completely changes the game as from a coach's perspective going into a third tiebreaker fight what sort of the mentality that you would think that that would be going through the coaches minds
0: look there, there is an element I think you have to accept that it that, that it is a fight and even sefu last week was saying the same thing like sometimes you lose Matt sometimes you you eat a hot one and you're done and that can happen you know so I think there is a part there where you have to leave it in in the hands of the gods you know what I mean there is a part where, so you don't put this unnecessary pressure it's a fight maybe you clip him maybe he clips you but Having said that, there are ways that you can mitigate the risks. And I think when – there's also – before I say that, there's also other things. There's things that you don't know. Like no one necessarily knows going into it. Like I was listening to Javier Mendes the other day talking about um, – oh, Vasquez, sorry – about the, the first fight. And he's talking about um, DC having had surgery not long before that. Uh, before the second fight and how that may have affected. And back surgery, like people don't understand, man. Back surgery is no joke. Like any type of back surgery, it's it's no no joke at all. So I, I don't know how that affected. Before the first fight, um, Mijic had had a war with uh, Ngannou and Francis looks like he hits pretty hard, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you, you don't know how any of those things affected their game plans and their ability to take a shot or their ability... To wrestle or their ability, so there's stuff in the camps that people don't know about and you're never going to know about so who knows what's happened there. The other thing is of course they're going to look over the videos of their last fights um, look at notes and or videos of their training sessions and look at what they could do better what they you know where they didn't pull the trigger um, uh, the the body shots that um Mirtic hit Cormier within the second fight in the fourth round. Brutal, like absolutely brutal. I I don't know, like there's, I I think, like like I said, what I said before is what I think um, both of them are gonna try and do. I think that Cormier is gonna like try and hurt him, hurt his legs early, Miocic's legs, and then get in close, dirty box, throw fast hands and try and and stop him um, and wrestle when he gets in close. I'm not saying anything that anybody else doesn't know. And I think Miacich is probably you're going to see some straight-line kicks to the body, a bit more attacks to the legs, maybe some knee stomps, maybe some some leg kicks, some calf kicks, um, and probably using his jab a little more. Probably. Um, the thing is as well that the the other thing is a left high kick, spamming a left high kick every now and then with Cormier, I think would be really good because Cormier. Always drops his head to this side. That's how John John Jones caught him, but he always drops it badly this side. And that's um, when uh, he drops it, whether it's to change his level or to get out of the way of strikes. He's he like there's a real like over accentuation this way to his right.
1: We've spoken about this before, and you said that like when you watch tapes of someone, you just see that. So, would that sort of thing? Like they probably identified it. They probably watched the fight with as before and sort of see that. How do you untrain that?
0: But but the thing is you've got you got to also understand because I'm not criticizing Cormier because who am I to criticize Daniel yeah. Cormier? Um, you've got to understand because when, when it probably leaves his head open, but it's probably part of his level changing as well. Yep. Do you know Which what I mean? It leads to
1: an opportunity.
0: Yeah, so, so you don't know what he's going to do. It's easy to say it. After it happens, yeah. but you do see after he gets hit, everyone. That's it. That, that's exactly <laughs> and right. It,
1: and if it plays out, and he's the champion, and everyone loves him,
0: he 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 drops his level and grabs that single a lot of the times. Yeah. Um. He's, you know, he can also drop his level like that and then come up with an uppercut, which he did do in the in the second fight. He did that as well. Um,
1: and when we're talking about that, it's a split second. Yeah, it's not like like you you, you
0: can't wait for him to do it. Yeah. You've got to know that maybe you throw a jab, and when you throw a jab, he slips to the to his right, right? So you throw the jab, he slips to his right. You've got to figure out a way. Can I get that left high kick coming up? Yeah. Or um, so
1: in a way, like just for a non-fighter like myself, like you really has have to anticipate that kick or that punch for that dip before it actually happens.
0: Yeah. So it'd be something. And and then you can do all the stuff that you do, and you don't catch him, and he catches your leg and takes you down. You know, it doesn't mean that you don't have a good game plan or or whatever. Like it's people don't understand that they don't understand what's happening in the actual fight. Like anything can happen, and the fact that maybe Miocic goes out there, throws a left high kick, catches Cormier, that doesn't mean that Cormier doesn't know or was unprepared or anything. It just that's the game. You know, these guys are fighting. You know, they're fighting MMA. But that's my opinion. Please, <laughs> like and subscribe and then put down all the insults you want in the comments. We're going to go over to our guest now. Yep. Um, very, very special guest. I'm actually probably one of the times that I've been the most nervous is um now, uh, I don't know, I've always, this guy's been like the the soundtrack to my youth, um, Mr. Michael Chevello, the voice. So um, let's see if we can go across to him. Um, Thank you so much for coming and for making the time. I I really, really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Fabrizio. Nice to be on
0: here, mate. Thanks for having me. Can I – I just want to go through a few of your um, accolades, and I don't want you to get angry and get all prima donna on me if I miss anything. Um, (laughs) You've written for more than 50 publications. You were the editor of Blitz magazine, uh, editor of International Kickboxer. You were a feature writer on Inside Sport youngest ever inductee into um, the Best Australian Sports Writing Awards, the first ever Leading Man Award at the World MMA Awards. You've written six books, Bouncer, Offside, The Wild Side of Soccer, uh, Bodies of the Rich and Famous, Reflex Jack, and Know Thyself, using the symbols of Freemasonry to improve your life, plus Goodnight Irene recently. Have I missed anything? Uh, Plus, you've done The Voice as well. Your voice versus <laughs> um, all, the, all the people uh, you've, you've done. You've, you've done a pretty good summary there, mate. Pretty good summary, I've got to say. Spot on. Okay. I, don't, I didn't want you to just throw your hat and just walk out because I, I, <laughs> I hadn't done it all. You know, you know the thing with, with you that um, spun me out the most was because I always listened and I used to train uh, with Huppy in Liverpool in like mm-hmm. the, the, the 90s, right, when, when Mark and all of that. And I thought you were like an older guy right Because like say I was like sixteen and you were um you were commentating on on Fox, and so I used to always imagine the guy good night, Irene, Mark Hunt, the man with the sleep people, all that stuff. So I've you know, you've been in my head since I was about sixteen. and then I realized oh, this guy's like five years older than me, like so you were twenty one when you inked your first deal with Fox. am I correct?
2: Yeah, uh, I think Foxtel came to Australia, pay TV came in ninety six which is when I began commentating for them. Uh, I was the youngest commentator ever on Australian television. I think I probably still hold that um, that title 21 years old. Uh, I began commentating at 20 and I think I was 21 or just maybe just before I turned 22 that I was commentating for Fox Sports. So yeah, you know a lot of a lot you're not alone though. A lot of people did think I was much older um, especially there in the mid to late 90s but man, yeah, I was only 21, 22, 23 at that time.
0: Yeah, it, it, so I, I used to watch um, all the, like, obviously, I used to watch all those fights and everything. Um, and, l- like, seeing, like, fights, like, like I said to Ray when we did his last week, like, seeing fights like him and Mark were, like, I knew the kickboxing wasn't for me, man. I was, like, no, nah, I'm going to go do something else, anything, but not but not that. Um, and I just want to, I, I guess, let's start with um, your family, man. Like, how, how did you even end up? Doing this? Like, what made you go? I'm going to be a commentator. Like, what, what'd your mom and dad do? Who were who they?
2: No, it's, an, it's an interesting story because when I was growing up, uh, I come from a, a family of uh, my dad was an immigrant factory worker from Italy, a uh, shoemaker, worked in a factory, turning his hands black, making shoes, and uh, grew up with three sisters. And uh, when I was growing up, the only thing I ever wanted to do was become an architect, strangely enough. That's all I wanted to do was be an architect. And when I was 15 years old and I wrote away to um, 20 or so architecture firms for work experience placement, and uh, strangely, none of those architecture firms ever wrote back to me, not even with a no. It was just the weirdest thing. And I remember camping by the mailbox after school, waiting for the postman to come and crying to my mum. Uh, this was in 1990, saying, mum, what am I going to do for work experience? None of these architecture firms had written me back. And my mum said something that would become very prophetic as mothers had this uncanny ability to be very prophetic in our lives. She said to me, you've got a good voice. Why don't you do radio? I said, where did that come from, radio? I don't, I don't want to do radio. I want to be an architect. I want to design houses. I love drawing. She goes, trust me, you've got a good voice. Try doing radio. Sorry, can I just, so ask, just to pl- so, so, yeah. Sorry
0: to interrupt. But how, how did your mum, because like my mum's done prophetic stuff like that as well. Um she would have probably said about radio with me more because of my face, but how how did <laughs> how did your mum have that that like do you know what I mean? Like to 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 think oh radio, blah blah blah, cause uh, a lot yeah, of people. You know,
2: when I was writing the book Goodnight Irene, uh, which comes out on October 1st and it details a lot of this in there, I had to think back, like how did my mum know that? Was I know she's pretty close with God as all Italian mothers are? Was it was it a message divinely inspired? But I think what it was, Fabrizio, was that uh I'd always commentated things since I was young with no intention of becoming a commentator. It's just what I did. When I played in the backyard, I'd go inside my own head and I'd commentate imaginary football games out loud, running around the backyard, kicking a football, commentating entire leagues, entire games inside my head and out loud. And then I'd invent imaginary wrestling matches in my head with wrestlers I made up and finishers and rankings and chair shots and suplexes and incredible moves and... I do all this and commentate them out loud while hitting a tennis ball against the wall in my backyard and not realizing that mum was probably listening to all this while she was hanging washing on the line or doing some stuff in the garden. So I guess that you know when it came time for work experience and none of the architect firms wrote me back, she sort of figured, hey, I've listened to this kid for years commentate out of his imagination. Let's see if he can take this voice and do it for real. So like I said, just to placate her, I wrote away to... um uh, radio station, Triple M, because I used to listen to Triple M. And the freaky thing was that literally a couple of weeks later, I got a letter from Triple M and I still have the letter. I've actually printed it in the book. And um, it's dated serendipitously on my birthday, April 10, 1990, and accepted me for a week's work experience at Triple M. So I went to the studios at Triple M in South Melbourne. Uh, I had I had no idea what I wanted to do in radio. I didn't want to do radio. I wanted to be an architect. And this lady called Deanne Sloan, who was in charge of the work experience kids, looked at me and she said, I've got a good feeling about you. I'm going to put you in the newsroom with our journalists. So she puts me in this newsroom with the journalists, and in there are journals like Nicole Gunn, who is still on Triple M. Eddie Maguire was there, young Eddie Maguire, doing the rounds as he was back then. And I was blown away. And straight away, every thought I had of becoming an architect disappeared. And from that moment on, a, a light switch came on. And all I wanted to do was broadcast media. And that was it. That was how the trajectory of my life changed with one single event. It's it's just to look back at it, I, I get chills thinking about how it went down. And, you know, I, I can still remember my mum in the driveway that day saying those words to me so clearly and setting my life on that tangent.
0: You know, like again, like I don't want to, you know, keep going over the same thing, but I'm still amazed Honestly, at your mum's intelligence, at your mum's perceptiveness because, say for example, because I think people listening today don't understand. Like, we're talking about what was you talking about? Ninety five. You're talking about no, no, nineteen ninety. No, nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety. So just to give like an idea, like the internet and all that. That, that wasn't that. There wasn't even there was no thought of YouTube or anything. And just today, when I was leaving, I said to my wife, um, "You know, should I really be doing this? You know, like it's um." You know, we've got a newborn. Like I, I work, you know, I work in that. I'm not crying a river. I work. I've got, I've got income in that. But I said to her, like, you know, am I wasting my time doing this? You know, I love doing this, but am I wasting my time? Da da da. And my wife, like, if you know, she's like, no, nah, do it. This is good. You, you enjoy it. That's the main thing. Da, da 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 da. But but in fairness, she's got the the perspective of the internet of podcasts and everything. For a mother to say in nineteen ninety, "Hey man, go do radio. You're going to do this. You're going to do that," like I just, I just still can't fathom how she, she did it. You know what I mean?
2: I, I can't either. And it's it, it just so many serendipitous things. And I remember my mum saying, you know, when, when she said, "Go do radio," and she said, um, uh, "You know, try being a radio journalist. Try being a broadcaster." But then I remember clearly, but promise me one thing promise me you won't go cover wars because they send journalists on radio to go cover wars. I don't want to get him blown up in the war. And I'm like thinking to myself, <laughs> man, five minutes, five minutes ago, I wanted to be an architect. Now my mom's visioning me in the middle East, getting blown up by landmines. You know what I'm saying? So it's just one of these things. I still remind my mom, I go, mom, you know, uh, uh she's always been my biggest supporter and my biggest helper. And I still say, mom, it was just prophetic what you did. And for years after that, you know, when that when that light bulb switched on in my head that I wanted to do radio and broadcast media, and then I started writing for local newspapers and hosting my own radio show on local community radio, mum was the one who was driving me around every weekend to cover soccer games that I'd commentate on 3AK, uh, to, 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 to cover uh, games, football, amateur football and local soccer that I'd do for ABSW and the leading newspapers and and magazines and Il global newspaper and all that sort of stuff she was driving me around all weekend she believed in me and her belief in me gave me belief in myself and just through sheer passion and dedication and hard work you know i I made it happen and it's still hard work and it's still dedication and it's still passion even though it may seem like yeah I'm on top of the the commentary world, on top of the, the martial arts world, you know, working for one championship and having done K1 and Dream and Dynamite and the Olympic Games and the Commonwealth Games and the Contender and all this stuff, you've still got to work hard to stay on top because you're a part of a very competitive industry where everybody's trying to get that foot in the proverbial door. Yeah, and the top
0: of the pyramid, there's less space up there, you know what I mean? So there's not there's not 12 guys commentating one 1f, 1FC. There's like, you know what I mean? There's you only doing your job you know so it's even right it's even harder and so
2: you've got to guard you, you want to guard that protect that and the way to do that is by always improving not resting on your laurels not saying well i'll just i'll just uh, you know clock in and get another paycheck even today and fabrizio i've commentated roughly around man i've been commentating since 1994 so 26 years since i first commentated that's fight sports okay I've probably commentated about 7,000 fights, maybe more than anyone else, about 7,000, if not more fights. And the thing is that even today, I still try to do better the next show than I did in the last show. I still watch the show back and go, what can I do better? Where did I go wrong? How can I improve? How can I change? How can I mold? How can I tweak to sound even better and give the audience something even better than what they got last time? And I think if you're not doing that in life, if you're not evolving from the person you were professionally and personally, but you know we're talking professionally at the moment, if you're not evolving from who you were a year ago or five or ten years ago and you're resting your laurels, then you, you're bringing nothing to the table, and that's a very scary predicament to be in because at any time someone could just turn around and go, well, you know what, we're going to go a new direction because you've you've become stale. And I, I never want that to happen. And this is a job that I've always ferociously and fiercely, you know, fiercely guarded and been protective of, and fought for. And even going back to the K1 days, I remember commentating a show with Ray Sefo. Uh, where were we? I think we were in Fukuoka, Japan. We did a show. We commentated together. And I traveled with glandular fever. You know, uh, In America, they call it mono, mononucleosis, glandular fever, which is really bad. You get swollen lymph nodes. Oh, yeah. You sweat a lot. You, you sleep a lot. You're really bedridden for a couple of months. Well, I was... At the peak of glandular fever, and I went to the doctor and I said, I've got to go to Japan and you know, commentate Fukuoka. And he's like, Out of the question, you're going to stay at home, you're going to sleep, you're going to relax, get rid of glandular fever. And I said, No, I I boarded a plane the next day. I was over in Fukuoka, sweating like a pig, really hot, but I did it. I I commentated, and I've done that so many times where you know, I I may have been sick or under the weather, or it may have been a, a hectic schedule, for example commentating the Contender Asia finale in Singapore one night in 2008, going that very night, racing to the airport in Singapore, hopping on a plane, then flying to Japan to commentate K1 the next day. I mean, these crazy schedules. But as a commentator in particular, that's what you've got to do. That's part of the game. When you're passionate enough, when you're driven enough, when you have that desire, you want to do these things.
0: I have a question or even a question slash statement because a lot of people don't understand this necessarily – I I can relate – the only thing I can relate to is how hard for us from Australia it is when you talk about international travel because travelling to Japan, which for us is like, oh, that's close. Japan is close. You're still looking at, depending where in Japan, anywhere from 8 to 12 hours, you know, depending on where where you're going and then um, let alone Europe or anything else. Can you speak to that a little bit? Like as far yeah, you as uh, travelling from uh, Australia, what man, it's like?
2: It, it's been really hard – It was really hard and it's still hard. I mean, the amount of – I've commentated in 20 – I counted it for fun a couple of months ago – 25 or 26 different countries from everywhere from Romania and Poland to Jamaica to France to Myanmar, Japan, China, USA, Canada, everywhere. I've probably traveled the equivalent of the moon and back 20 times in air miles and for a period there, when I when I started working for Access TV in the US doing all their mixed martial arts commentary, I was flying from Melbourne to America every ten days, and not just Melbourne to LA, which is sixteen hours. I'd get to LA, transfer, and then jump to Mid America, Kansas, uh, you know, St Louis, uh, Dallas, Lubbock, Houston, wherever it may be. So another four or five hour flight. And I was doing that from 2009 to 2011. It took such a, a massive mental and, and, and physical toll that I relocated to America in 2011 and based myself in Las Vegas and, and was based over there for, for six years, You know, working for Access TV in Las Vegas. The travel takes it out of you. But again, it's my method of getting to work. And after a while, you get used to it. You get the routine down. You know, you know how to access the lounge. You know where the restaurants are. You like. You know how to get through security in an easier fashion. How to pack really well so you're not overpacking. Uh, you know how to relax and how to, you know, have your iPad or Kindle loaded or whatever you need to to recharge or for downtime or to have you time. It's just one of those things we become used to. Most people catch a train to work. They catch a tram. They catch a bus. They drive their car. They sit in traffic for an hour. Well, I, I sit on a plane for. For 10 hours, 12 hours. You you become used to it. And if you love what you do, then you don't have to love that part, but it's it's a necessary part to get to what you love. You know, so it's like, man, I don't want to leave my family. I don't want to go through the rigmarole of going through three or four airports to get to somewhere like, say, Myanmar, you know, but you do it because you know that when you get there, you're gonna be in your element. You're gonna be doing something you love that you were put on the earth to do. And when you know that. Fabrizio makes it a, a lot easier.
0: What What was uh, living in Vegas like? Was it easier for you to get to the fights? Were you able to, to do more work? And help, and why did you move back?
2: I loved living in Vegas. I, I could not recommend Vegas highly enough. Uh, I love it. I love that city. We lived behind the strip, behind the Bellagio in a beautiful apartment complex. Uh, we could walk over the bridge and get to the Bellagio in five minutes and then off strip, there was a great community as well for us. Our son was our first son was born over there, so he's a little um, you know Las Vegas desert rat. He was born in Vegas, yeah. and there was a great community to plug into in the valley. You know, a big family community away from the strip, away from all the the, the casinos. Uh, I was I'm, I'm not a gambler myself, and you know I don't have any vices like that, so the casinos never really affected me. But it was a lot of fun traveling wise. You know, instead of traveling from Australia to America, I was bouncing around the U.S. Furthest ones i do was on the East Coast going to uh, Rhode Island or Hartford, Connecticut, you know, which is a five-hour flight or to uh, Florida, which is, you know, five, four-and-a-half-hour flight from Vegas. So it was much easier. Uh, working for a great crew at Access TV, you know, with um, commentating with the guys like Pat Miletich, who's a UFC Hall yeah, of Famer, who famous. was my long-time verbal sparring partner over there, um, hosting the Voice Versus show, getting some tremendous opportunities, working for, you know, Mark Cuban, who's this um, – you know, fantastic uh, billionaire who's got so many inventive ideas and still does, and I loved it. And the reason why I eventually moved back to Australia was that my my contract with Access was uh, was coming up and uh, my wife was pregnant with our second child and we decided we wanted to raise our child back in Australia. And at the same time, uh, one championship, uh, a guy called Bo Vongsenkun, who is the EP of One, who worked with me on Access TV in the States and was now based in Singapore – this is in 2017 as the EP for One Championship. He used to contact me all the time saying, Michael, can you come commentate One? Can you do this event this weekend? And I'm like, oh, I can't. I'm locked in with Access. And eventually when I knew I wanted to go back home to, to Australia, I said, listen, make me an offer. If One Championship really wants me, make me an offer. One made an offer. The offer was good. And it was my uh, way to come back home. And from you know Access, which was great doing the regional shows in, in the US, getting back to doing big shows, worldwide shows for over 150 countries with one championship in arenas that were holding, you know, 20,000 people again um, was an opportunity too good to miss and one that I have relished and still continue to relish.
0: If I say 1FC, K1, Dream, uh, Sengoku, AXS, the Mundine versus Green, um, Boxing in Australia – the kickboxing stuff you've done in Australia, um, the Olympics, I don't know. Tell me what, which which ones were, you know, what sits at the forefront for you?
2: Uh, you know, the Olympic Games, I think, for anyone in the sports world, whether you're an athlete or a broadcaster, I think the Olympic Games is like, it's that notch you try and get under your belt. You know, it's that one you really aspire towards. And I did it in 2008 at the Beijing Games, commentated all the boxing, uh, which was about 232, 242 fights in 11 days, commentating on my own solo for 140 different uh, countries as part of the ABU, the Asian Broadcasting Union. That was a, an experience I'll, I'll never forget. It was just – there's nothing like being a part of the Olympic Games, being a part of the biggest – sports event on the planet. K1 for me was a fairy tale. It was a dream. It was my um, uh, my true passion, my ability to take all my imagination for commentary and put it into a product with the storylines and uh, the characters we built and the action and the way we presented it. I mean, K1 gave me just the biggest palette to be able to paint a, a, a masterpiece, you know, a beautiful picture. As much as I wanted to, they gave me all the tools to work with, and the the character we injected into it, I think, was was amazing in those days. How and insane is the rule set? You know, sorry.
0: The rule set at K one is is insane. It just, it it just, it's everything about excitement at K one. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, was it suited you really, really good.
2: So sorry. Yeah, K one was built for knockouts it was built for television yeah, yeah. and even the way that they operated these guys wanted excitement above all else they didn't want technical know-how technical commentary they wanted excitement they wanted storytelling they wanted characters and one championship is very much the same not to the extent of of K1 which was a lot more liberal in what you could you could do and say but one championship is also about storytelling and building building real life heroes uh, rather than you know getting bogged down in the technicalities of, of what's going on. Um, but you know k1 uh, was certainly a highlight because it just gave me that chance to you know go all out just do it all and um, you know I have the responsibility wholly on, on on me to to quarterback the English language broadcast worldwide it was a it was huge and you know I started doing that when I was t- uh, 25 26 years old. It was just for a young person, you know, to do that was a massive responsibility, and I sort of took the ball and ran with it. The,
0: the thing you, the thing you're saying about K1, like it's exactly right. You could grab someone that's never seen fighting before at all, and they could watch it, and you put your voice to it, and they're listening to the commentary. They're not not to say you don't have technical knowledge. Of course, you have technical knowledge, but at K1, it was exactly that. It was like like meat and potatoes, the story it's remy Bojanski versus i don't know whoever and you just the it was just all excitement and that uh, k1 I, I don't think will like cuz glory although it is the same kind of thing but it's not it but it's not
2: it'll it'll never it'll never be repli- replicated people have tried people have done a decent job but k1 will never be replicated in how big it was the scope of it larger than life Comic book heroes that those guys were: Ray Cifo, uh Jerome Labana, Peter Ertz, Ernesto Hoost, Remy Bonjasky, Bada Hari, Bob Sapp, um, Andy Hug. These Hogue. guys, you know, A- 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 the late Andy Hug, God bless him. Yep. Um, these guys were larger than life, and th- 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 no matter what Glory has or continues to do, they will never achieve that. How did they achieve that? Because the marketing that? is 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 different. You know, it's just it's uh, everything is just different. The atmosphere is different.
0: Hey, can you speak to that? Like why is the atmosphere different? Like in, in what way can you explain that? Like what is it that you feel as a commentator?
2: Well, I think first of all, K1 concentrated on the heavyweights. So it was one market. Before K1 Max came along later on, right, it was the one market. It was the heavyweights. It wasn't let's go for 10 different weight classes. It's let's focus on the big boys, the heavyweights, because to Japan, they're the they're the main attraction. Okay. The Japanese are smaller people. You don't see people who are six foot five, six foot six, 300 pounds walking around in Japan. So to see these K1 figures and not, you know, these guys weren't all freak shows. Yeah, you had some freak shows like Hongman Choi, Bob Sapp. But other than that, these guys were highly skilled monsters. I mean, Simi Schultz was six foot 11, 120 kilos, highly skilled. Jerome LeBanner was 100 kilos, six foot three, highly skilled. Peter Ertz, six foot. Uh, 415 kilos, highly skilled. Butter Harry, six foot seven, hundred and twenty, hundred and fifteen 120, 115 kilos, highly skilled. These are guys that could put it together. And the way that they were marketed, the way they were branded, the way that their story, you know, when we sat down to production meetings, when I used to go to a production meeting with my director, Sasaki san, and my producer, Dayajiri san, they'd go through the matches one by one. And they wouldn't go through and say, okay, This is why Jerome Laban is good. This is why Mark Hunt is good. This is why Ray Cepho is good. This is why Nesto Hustle is good. They go, Michael, here's the storyline. Okay, let me give you an example here. 2001 K1 World Grand Prix, Jerome LeBanna, Mark Hunt quarterfinal. Okay. It's not about technique. It's not about, well, Jerome's been around for the longer. He's got the better technique. Mark is still a virtual unknown who's just a slugger. That's not going to put bums on seats. not going to put eyes on the television. The story is Jerome Le ben is the golden boy. He's the golden boy that's never won the big one, never won the K1 World Grand Prix. But this year is his year. He's had great run-up, great form leading up to it. This is his chance to become the big star and finally win the big one. All the money, all the marketing, all the TV, everything is on him. But here's this chunky New Zealand Samoan dude called Mark Hunt Who's got a big punch? But the stories come out recently that Mark Hunt once got hit by a truck, got run over by a truck and got up after it. Didn't go to hospital, wasn't hurt. So then at the press conference, the media surround Mark Hunt and say, Mark, is it true you got run over by a truck once and you got up, didn't go to hospital? And Mark goes, yep, it's true. It happened in Auckland. And just think guys, if a truck hit me, on a road, and it could have knocked me out, what chance does Jerome LeBanner, with all of his so-called fabled knockout power, have of knocking me out? The story was set. You had this hatred between the two guys because Mark showed no fear of Jerome. Jerome had this arrogance about him, and we were painting this arrogance, the arrogance he turned his nose up at everybody, Jerome LeBanner. ha. Huh. Even at Mark, the way they stare down before the fight—it's like he looks at Mark as if to say, "Who do you think you are, little fat man? Who do you think you are to share the ring with me, the great Jerome Labana?" And Mark, who came out to the ring with his t-shirt saying "Bad Coconut," just sort of stares at him, does this? Eh, all right, we'll see. First round of the fight, Jerome Labana owns Mark Hunt, owns him for three rounds. Inside, outside, leg kicks are hitting Mark's thigh. He's beating Mark to the punch. He's getting on the inside, landing combination, getting out of range. Mark cannot hit him flush. Second round, Mark changes it. Mark decides to suck Labana in. He drops his hands, invites Labana to hit him on the chin. Labana stupidly takes the bait. Moves in for a slugfest, and that's where Mark tags him, sucks him into a street fight, hits him with a 16-punch combination that knocks him out on his feet. By the 11th punch, he was out; eyes rolled back in his head. Mark gets in like five more punches, and Labana sinks to the canvas like the Titanic hitting an iceberg. It's 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 the most amazing Cinderella story I think in sports history. The Mark goes on to win the K1 Grand Prix. These are the stories, coming back to your original question, Fabrizio, that made K1 so big, so huge. Stories that everyone around the world, particularly in Japan, could embrace and made these guys more than just athletes in a ring. They made these guys superheroes. They were on noodle boxes. They were on car advertisements. They were on billboards everywhere. They were on TV game shows, on comic strips, in comic books. They were larger than life. Kids these days are watching the Avengers movies, you know, going to the cinema, watching the Avengers and the Avengers in comic books and and stuff like that. Back then, kids were watching k one. okay? There was no Iron Man and there was no Incredible Hulk and and there there was no Thor that you could watch in an Avengers movie. There was Ray Seppo. There was Bob Sapp. There was Peter Ertz. There was Ernesto Hoos. They were the real-life superheroes that people could follow, that's what made it so successful. And no one has replicated that yet. And I don't believe anyone will replicate that. What, what,
0: so rewinding just a little bit back, because, um, I mean, if I start talking as well about fighting, I'm going to just, we're just going to sit here and talk about fighting for two hours. Um, but, uh, so if I, if I go backwards a little bit, when you were 16, you were known, correct me if I'm wrong, as being able to get, um, interviews with, Maradona, Pelé, uh, Gabriela Sabatini, Goran Ivanisevic, people like that, and um, this was you being again 16. This is and I, again I, for my audience, um, all seven of you. I want yous to know that this is way before Instagram. This is way before yeah. um, anything, probably way before email. Like like, yep. n- so n- yep. you know, way 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 before all of that. You were still at school too, and so you you were yeah. like. You're doing interviews with Maradona, who – and as well, let me put this in perspective as well. Maradona back then was like you getting an interview with no internet, with no anything, with LeBron James today. Probably bigger, maybe, I would say. No disrespect to LeBron. But, um, yeah, probably bigger. So
2: can you you talk to that a little bit? It was – you know, I started doing a community radio station – Uh, working on a community radio show called Southern Sport in 1991, end of 1991. So what was I, Uh, 15, going on 16, and I wanted to interview people. I wanted to interview athletes, sports people. I wanted to interview big-name sports people, okay, big names that commercial – television and commercial radio took for granted. I wanted them on this little community radio station that was above a Salvation Army store in Melbourne's southern suburbs. And even though I was 16, 15, I didn't let it hold me back that I was young and that I was on a a small radio station. I would find out where athletes were staying when the cricketers came to town, when the tennis players came to town, soccer players came to town. I'd find out what hotel by scouring newspapers at the news agency or magazines and you know reading up on them. Because there was no internet back then, no email, no internet, none of that. And I'd find out, for example, I'd find out where the cricketers were staying when they came to town, the West Indies, the Indians, the Pakistanis, etc And I'd ring the hotel. I'd stay up all hours of night, ring the hotel. I'd ring the hotel. I'd drop my voice down a couple of octaves so I didn't sound 16 years old. Instead of saying I was from Southern FM, I'd say 3SCB. So I'd use the call sign of the station to sound more like a professional station. And sometimes I'd lie. You know, sometimes I get cricketers like Richie Richardson, who was the most famous cricketer on the planet, the West Indies captain back then when I was 16 years old, asking me, oh, okay, uh, are you any relation to um, 3AW? Oh, yeah, of course we are. I work for 3 aw sister station. You know, my show is the show to every cricketer who's been on. And I list all these cricketers. None of them have been on there. He didn't know that. And so I'd fib and it'd work and I'd get him on the radio And the thing was that, okay, you can sell a fib, but you've got to be able to back it up. So when I went to his hotel, the Hilton Hotel to interview him in his hotel room, I had to make sure I didn't sound like a little lying 16-year-old kid. I had to make sure I sounded like a professional journalist, that I had my statistics, I had my information, I had my questions all ready. Because if I didn't, I'd be dismissed as some little fanboy with a tape recorder and never get another interview. And I remember interviewing Richard Richardson and I did an introduction of him, like you did one for me earlier on. And he's like, whoa, you know more about me than I know about myself. That's amazing. And that gave me such a confidence booster. The same when I interviewed Dennis Alexio in 1992, you know, I was 16 years old and he was the first person who ever asked me how old I was. And I was so scared to tell him I was 16, you know, for fear that he'd think I was some teenage fanboy and and tell me to hit the pavement. But ended up doing a, a superb interview with him that you know was a, a great radio interview. And, you know, that was what got me started in the kickboxing, in, in the fight game, you know, meeting Dennis Alexio. And he was my inspiration um, to, to start that. Without that, I might not have been here today. So it was just being persistent for Briccio. I was just knocking on doors, ringing people up, um, later on sending faxes, you know, um, to interview people like Van Damme. I remember sending him a fax. Uh, you know, but mostly phone calls, just ringing, 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 and then getting my mum to drive me around to hotels, to, to press conferences, to other venues and, you know, looking the part, dressing the part, a, a professional attitude, a professional approach and, um, just giving it my, my, my best crack and believing in myself. And, you know, there's an old saying that perception is reality. So if people perceive you as a professional journalist, a professional broadcaster, That's the reality, but you've got to give that perception. So I can't rock up to an interview wearing thongs and shorts and a singlet and, you know, looking like I just got out of bed. I'd rock up in slacks and brogues and a button-down shirt. I'd have a briefcase on me that my mum had bought me. I'd have a tape recorder inside and notes and pens and pencils and get it all out and put it on the desk. I'd have, you know, a couple of magazines and stuff. So, hey, I look the part of an actual journalist. Perception is reality. I've always believed in that. And even today, I mean, I have no, I've never had a qualification for this. I I finished high school. That was it. I never got a degree in journalism, in broadcasting. I have no doctorate, no master's, no diploma, no bachelor's, nothing. I dropped out of university studying journalism after three months. I hated it. It was killing my writing. I dropped out. Much to my parents' dismay at the time, I dropped out. And can I'm, you speak about that when you say it was
0: killing your writing? Can you? Well,
2: I was, I was writing for several newspapers and covering fo- local football, VAFA, and local soccer, and um, doing some feature writing in magazines while I was studying at Deakin University in Geelong. Now, I'll, I'll preface this by saying nothing against the, the journalism course they offer. They produce a lot of great journalists who have gone on to some very, very good things. It wasn't for me, though, because I found that the way they taught me to write was so restrictive that they weren't paying attention to me as an individual. But it was like, you now must write the same as the other 30 people in this journalism class. And God forbid you try to put a little bit of personality in there and you go off script a little bit and try and, uh, you know, uh, gonzo it a little bit, you know, um, that was frowned upon. And I just couldn't, it was too restrictive. I couldn't write like that. So when I quit after three months, I taught myself how to feature write. That was in 1993. I I quit uni. By 1998, I was inducted into the Best Australian Sports Writing Awards, the youngest person ever inducted. I was one of the 26 best sports writers in Australia that year for a piece I did in Women in Sport magazine on Kathy Freeman. I taught myself. So... A message for people out there, and I address this in the book, Goodnight Irene, which is out on October 1st, and you can pre-order it now, but it's in the book that I want people to know, Fabrizio, that if you are passionate enough and you've got the desire to do something, go for it and do it and believe in yourself and work hard enough. You don't always need the certificate on the wall. You need the passion. You need the drive, the determination, and you can teach yourself a lot of things, okay? Always practice. But when you practice, whether it's broadcasting, whether it's writing, they say practice makes perfect. Well, practice with improvement will eventually make perfect. Perfect. If you get practicing and you're doing the same thing over and over again, I mean, if your your podcast today is the same as your podcast last week and the same as the week before, you're never going to improve. But if you're practicing, so next week's podcast is even better than this one, then you're you're going to get better and better and better. And eventually you're going to perfect it. Okay, even though, you know, a work of art is never never finished, it's only ever abandoned, you're eventually going to get something close to a state of what you consider to yeah, be of course. A, a perfect product, you know. Um, so that was me. I always just had that drive and determination, and I had people tell me, you're not going to amount to anything in TV. You know, I, I was I was the fat wog, dude. I was the fat wog with the greasy hair you, I had here back then, I was weighing 130 kilos in my early 20s. I had no tact with women, no social life. Man, I used to hide in darkened cinemas with a box of popcorn and a big Coke because I was I was I was upset about the way I looked, man. I was not happy with the way I looked. I was not confident around people, around my family, around my friends, definitely not around the opposite sex. Only confidence I had was when I was doing two things: talking on air and writing, because they allowed me to be invisible. When I was commentating on TV or on radio, you couldn't see me. You couldn't see how fat I was. Through my words, when you were when I was writing in magazines, you couldn't see what I looked like. So I could be anyone. I could be an award-winning writer. I could be the voice commentator. I could be anyone. And those two things gave me the confidence. I had people say, you're not blonde-haired, blue-eyed, you don't have an Anglo-Saxon name, you're not the TV image. Even to this day, in Australia, and I hate to say it, it's true, man. I tried to break down doors so many years in Australia and all the doors that have opened up for me over the years, outside of Fox Sports very early, you know, and even with Fox Sports, i got to say. It's a very I specific genre them.
0: as well that you it were was, doing. It was. It
2: was a very niche. It was kickboxing. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to do the boxing for them. I asked, can I commentate boxing? No. Can I commentate soccer? Let me commentate the soccer. I know Soccer Inside Out. I was founder of Soccer International Magazine. I've covered two World Cups. No. Let me commentate rugby. Let me commentate AFL. Let me commentate swimming. No, stick to kickboxing. Very limited market. I kept knocking on the doors, wouldn't get anything, you know. Overseas, I got opportunities in America. I got opportunities in Japan. My opportunity now, again, is in Asia. It's just one of those things, you know, but I never let it get me down. I always worked to go beyond that, you know, stuck to my guns and realized that I have got a good voice. I can write. I can deliver something that other people can't do it like I do it. And people overseas saw that and gave me the opportunities. But, you know, for – yeah, I had a lot of people, man, tell me that you won't make it. It's not nice to hear. And when doors keep shutting on you, you wonder. Like you were saying before, you wonder, should I be doing this? But you keep going, man. I have a question. We we were
0: at school together. Let's say we're the same age. We're at school together, 96, 97. I would have been – Say 16, 17. If we were both 16, 17 at school, you're, you're 11, you're 12, you're 10, who were you? Like, who I were you at school? The, or, yeah. I
2: was the kid who was. I was fat. I was a fat kid. Okay. I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think I was that fat back then, but I was the fat kid who had no athletic prowess, who was in the thirds team for soccer. Yeah, the first team, second team, I was in the thirds team. Uh, I was the kid who you thought was an altar boy who was going to become maybe a priest one day because I was the good, you know, Catholic boy. Um, I came out of my shell a little bit in year 11, uh, when I became editor of the school magazine because it gave me a chance to see my byline for the first time and to write for the first time and find an alter ego. But I even remember when I got the editorship of the school magazine. This kid coming up to me in, in, in the hallway. His name was Dan E, freckle-faced, redheaded kid. I remember.
0: Fuck, they're always. And he's a like coming
2: to me, right? <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, Shiv, my nickname was Shiv. Shiv, I hear you're going to be editor of the magazine." I'm like, "Yeah." Oh, so it's going to be full of pictures of Jesus and and and, and church hymns, is it? And he laughed and walked away, and I'm like, "I'll show you, man. I'll, I'll show you. You know what I can do." But that's how I was. I got into the, debate, the debating team in year 11, and that allowed me to use my voice. I got more confidence because I had this loud voice that I could use to debate and be part of the, the, the top, top debating team at school. Um, so when I found those two things, Fabrizio, writing and my voice, my life started to, to, to change for the better. They were the two things I put all my energies into. God knows I couldn't put energies into sport. Academically, I was good. I wasn't A plus, A grade level. But I wasn't down there either. I was good, you know, decent academics. I studied hard. I worked my butt off. Um, but I trusted in my voice and my ability to write. That's that's who I was. And um, I wasn't. I didn't do anything reckless. I never got into drugs. I never drank. I, I didn't swear or curse. Um, you know, I was just the good the good boy who was, uh, you know, um, trying to do his best. Did you?
0: I think you mention it in the in the book Good Good Night Irene because I've looked at the thing I'm going to buy it, um, and I suggest everyone does too. Um, and in that, you talk about bullying, and you the the picture you describe, although, um, you know, you would have been a good kid, wouldn't have think, but that's kind of like the person that weak kind of people will try and will try at least they'll at least try. Did you is that something you went through?
2: You know, it's really. It is. Um, it's 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 weird, man. Because writing the book, you know, writing Good Night Irene, I had to bring back all these memories of of bullying and being picked on, and it was weird, man. I this this guy on Facebook, I won't mention his name, but a guy used to go to high school with him. Facebook, and he saw it. He saw a write up about the book. And, you know, the book's entitled, "Goodnight Irene, How a Bullied Fat Kid from Melbourne Became a Global Broadcasting Star. So in the subtitle of the book, Bullied is there. Bullied yeah, Fat absolutely. Kid. And he wrote to me on Facebook. He's like, oh, hey, Shiv, I saw you got a book coming out. He goes, funny thing is I always remember you being a, a – um, um, I, I don't want to get this wrong. I always remember you being a pretty happy, a pretty happy level-headed kid. I'm like, okay, yeah. You know why you remember you being a pretty happy, level-headed kid? Because I've always been a happy person because I've never been a person who wallows in self-pity. I've never been a, woe be me, oh, pity me, have pity on me, everybody hug me, oh, everybody have pity on me. It's never been me. Even when I was getting picked on for my weight, Okay. Even when I was embarrassed, I never wanted pity from anybody. I was always the happy, smiling, trying to be as outgoing as I could, keeping those demons inside down, because that's the way you do it. I don't want to give in to them. You know, I don't want to stoke the fire. I want to put the fire out. I'm not going to fuel the anxiety, the pain I'm already feeling by going into a, a, a you know woeful self misery. And he deleted this message. I think he realised it a day later and I went to – I was going to reply to him. I thought, you know what, I'm not going to. I'm just going to let it go. And he deleted the message. So he must have thought about it. It's like and this kid, mind you, this was one of the – this was one of the kids that – was those kids he used to pick on you at school. The kid that was the top sportsman, had the good looks, had the good marks, had everything, came from a well-to-do family, you know, but until you're in someone else's shoes, until you know what it's like, you can't comment. The first time I got teased was in grade three. Kid in, the, and I, kid in the playground called me beach ball. I mean, running around, beach ball, beach ball, poking me in the stomach. And to me, it was like the, 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 that was the, the loss of innocence because when you're in grade three, man, you don't know you're different to anyone else. You don't see it. You're happy. Everyone, you're the same as everyone else. Used a kid in the playground flicking footy cards, eating a Sunny Boy, you know, talking about Swatch watches in the nineteen eighties. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, huh? I'm a beach ball. What does he mean? Poking at my stomach? What? I'm I'm fat. I'm different to all my my friends who I'm playing foursquare with, playing footy cards and marbles with. I'm different. You know, year eight, uh, we went on a, a school camp to a place called Buxton, and then got back from camp and. I remember there was this new kid to the school. They hadn't been there for four months. And one lunchtime, his name was Edmund. One lunchtime, no, Edward. He came and sat next to me. And I thought, oh, this is cool, man. The new kid sit next to me, drinking his Coke, eating his sandwich. I'm there eating my mortadella sandwich. And he wants to talk to me, be friends. This is great. He's the cool kid. He's one of the sportos. You know, he's a cool, good football player, good-looking kid. Everyone gravitates towards him. Sits down next to me. He's like, hey, Shiv, how you going? I'm like, Ed, I'm Good. I'm great. Big <laughs> smile on my face. This kid's talking to me, man. He goes, oh. He goes, oh, did you have a good time at camp? Yeah, I did. I had a great time at camp. How about you? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, um, I, I, I saw your footprints. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a weird thing to say. Okay, he must be get into a joke. All right, he's the cool kid. It's going to be a good joke. I don't remember it. I always forget jokes. He goes, yeah. We went abseiling down the cliff face and he goes, you're so fat off. So I saw the footprints you left in the rocks. And I just sunk, man. I, I sunk. It. I'm like, really? My face my has sunk. And he went off and laughed with his mates and gave him high fives. I'm like, you don't know me. It's so the first time you've spoken to me. You're new to the school. You've been here four months and you, you, you're doing shit like that. I mean, you know, they're the type of things that I address them in the book. And if life, it can go two ways for Britzio. You can either let them get to you and use it as, as an excuse to not achieve anything, or you can say, I'm not going to let it get to me. I'm going to use it as an impetus. I'm going to use it as a springboard. I'm going to say, you know what? I'll prove you guys wrong. You thought that I couldn't do anything. You thought that I was going to be the fat wog, okay, who couldn't follow through with his dream to be on TV, his dream to write books, write magazines, etc. I'll show you and it's not the driving force of my career it's never has been the driving force but it's part of it it's like i showed you i want i want to keep showing you you know so i, I hope anyone watching this who, who's been bullied or has been bullied or has kids or knows kids that have been bullied can can watch this and go listen to what i you know what michael's saying cuz i was there and i overcame it and i did it and anyone can do it. And these days, for Bricio, there are so many more opportunities to do it. I'm looking at you right now with the headphone and the, the microphone and this beautiful setup. That wasn't around in 1990 when I was young.
0: It wasn't around 20 podcasts yeah. ago.
2: <laughs> it wasn't around, man. Podcast, in, you know, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook wasn't around. These days, if a kid says, I want to be on radio, you got every opportunity. Buy yourself a microphone. Log into your computer, hop on YouTube, record. Do an Instagram Live. Do a Twitter Live. Do a Facebook Live. Do a video. Chop it up. Edit it up. Do effects, everything, music. Put it online. It's all there. You can perfect your art and grow an audience. Didn't have that back then. So believe it. you just got to believe in yourself. Don't listen to what others say. If they're not supporting you, don't worry. Just go ahead and do it, man. Make it happen.
0: I, I have a question for you. We go in here like you have with, you know, all these fights, one FC, all the things, Sengoku, everything, and you've done kickboxing, MMA thing. What's it like, like say, for example, you and Ray are friends. What's it like for you when you have to, if you, I mean, you might not have had to call Ray's fights, but what's it like if you have to call a friend's fights and then you see them lose or you see them get hurt? It's horrible. It's horrible. I called
2: a lot of Ray's fights. It's horrible. I love Ray. Ray Sefo is my my brother from another mother, man. I wouldn't have gotten the gig as a commentator for K1 if it wasn't for Ray Cepho. Ray was the one who put my name forward. Ray was the one that said to K1 when they were looking for an English broadcaster, Michael Chevello is the guy you want. And to be accepted into Ray's fight family and part of Ray's entourage all those years was some of the most amazing memories. I loved the man. And I commentated so many of his fights and man, when I saw him lose, it's hard. It's heartbreaking. It's like, you know, and some of the losses were, were some bad losses. When he's in there against Barter Hurry and is kneeing him because is that much bigger than him and Ray couldn't get out of range of the knees or when semi-short knocked him out, I mean, it's hard. But you've got to keep up. You've got to keep commentating. You've got to go through it. Anytime you see a mate fight, it's hard. Ray was probably the closest mate to me I've seen fight that I've commentated. You know, and to see him lose was was devastating. When he, when he wins, it's jubilant, you know. But to see any mate or anyone you're close to, anyone you've developed an emotional attachment to, to commentate them is is, is heartbreaking. It's gut-wrenching. But you've got to try not to show that emotion too much, okay? Um, that's, that's the trick. And I admit it, it's come through at times, I'm sure. I, I've shown bias towards fighters you know, that I've become emotionally attached to or particularly shown bias towards fighters because it was part of a storyline. Um, case in point, Bada Hurry, K1 Grand Prix, what was it, 2010, 9, when I was celebrating ringside, when Bata knocked out Alistair him, and me and Ray and Mike Kogan were celebrating that very infamous shot of us. That was a storyline we were doing. And, you know, some fans ripped into us, like, how can you be so biased and so full on Bata Hurry? But that was a storyline We were building through K1, and it was a huge ratings-winning storyline that worked out well, that was Bardo versus Alistair, kickboxing versus MMA, you know, who would win this this battle between these guys. But, yeah, you know, um, it's not easy commentating someone you're friends with. It never has been, and still to this day, you know, it's not easy.
0: On Ray Sefu, with your close relationship of him, I heard a rumour, and you don't have to speak about this if you don't want to, but that you defiled one of Ray's belts. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness. How did you hear that? Mate. How did you hear that?
0: There's some things you I've do heard. Your
2: research. You do your research well.
0: There's some things that I've heard about <laughs> you, Michael, that I'm not going to bring them up here.
2: <laughs> so. I didn't do the defiling personally. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> I'll tell you a abridged a, a version of the story here. Many, many, many moons ago in Las Vegas, when I, after I commentated the K1 uh, Grand Prix in Las Vegas, uh, I was staying at Ray's house for a few nights. 2007, 2006, I think it was. Ray had this awesome house out in the burbs of Vegas. Anyway, I met this, um, this girl at one of the casinos and had invited her to Ray's place. She had found one of his championship kickboxing belts because Ray was a, what was he, a 10-time world champion, had found one of his belts and um, wanted to uh, do some inappropriate things with said belt. And that is all I'll say. <laughs>
0: it's worse that you say it like that <laughs> because the, 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 the people's imagination will wonder.
2: I do not engage in such acts. Um, in fact, uh, I, I, this is an interesting <laughs> point. Back in those days when you used to go to, I remember going to K1 in Vegas for the first time, 2006, and Monty DiPietro, who was the K1 journalist back then who wrote all the K1 articles you used to read online. Great guy. Monty said to me, Chiavello, is this your first time in Vegas? I'm like, yeah. He goes, okay. He goes, you're going to have women come up to you. Gorgeous women at bars are going to come up to you. I'm like, awesome. It's great. He goes, they're going to want to grab your phone number. They want to invite you to. Their hotel room or ask to go back to your hotel room. It's going to happen. I'm like, oh, sensational. He goes, But you must ask those women, Are you working? What do you mean, Monty? What do you mean, are you working? He goes, You must ask them, Are you working? By law, they have to tell you if they're a working girl. Ah, okay. So getting back to the story, the girl that I invited to Ray's house. I forgot to ask her if she was a working girl. <laughs> After the little title bout incident, I asked her. Then it clicked, are you a working girl? Yes, she was. I rang the front gate, security came, and they heaved her out. So, <laughs> yes. Okay, Your so, research is far
0: too good, sir, far uh, too good. I'd heard, and you, you, don't, you only have to say yes, sir, I heard that there was spanking involved with the belt. Refuse to comment on it.
2: Next, next question. I love you, Ray. All your belts are nice and clean. Don't worry.
0: That's the one person you don't want to piss off, eh, Ray? <laughs> so um, all the advice that we've gotten from Michael Chavello, so two important things is ask women in Vegas if <laughs> if they're working girls and don't take giant islanders' belts into
2: <laughs> yes. the, debauchery two most important life lessons right there. <laughs> They're the most two important. two if you us take nothing else. Not if you the bullying Nothing. nothing. This podcast remember those things.
0: The two most important <laughs> things there. Um so so I have a question here. What's what's happening down there with um with uh covert and everything with, with in Melbourne? Like how are you guys how's that affecting you with your flights or with everything?
2: Uh we can't travel anywhere at the moment. Uh, we're locked down. We're in stage four restrictions. Can't go anywhere um, unless, you've got one, unless you've got one of the approved jobs where you can travel outside the five-kilometer radius to go for work. Uh, television broadcasting, internet broadcasting is one of the approved jobs, so um, I could travel for that. Um, it, it's been an adjustment. You know, One championship just returned after a five-month absence due to COVID-19, uh, returned just uh, last week. Uh, with a show out of Bangkok, and it was an interesting setup because the show was beamed live out of Bangkok inside the Impact Arena, which is the biggest arena in Thailand, 20,000 people, audience free, no audience. In Singapore, we had Rich Franklin, former UFC champion, who's now the uh, VP of One Championship. We had Rich Franklin and Steve Dawson hosting in studio. I was commentating from my home in Melbourne, well, Mitch Chilson, my co-commentator, was commentating from his apartment. No, he was in the One Championship offices in Manila. So here I am on my laptop commentating from Melbourne. Mitch is doing it from Manila. The broadcasting studio in Singapore is hosting the show, and the show is actually beamed out of Bangkok Live. This is the situation we find ourselves in at the moment. When you watch the show, and you guys can watch it on YouTube, go to the One Championship channel, the whole show is there. It's amazing. Six fights were off the charts, MMA, kickboxing, and Muay Thai. Um, it sounded like we were there. The production was astronomical. Um, everything went out off without a hitch. But that's only because of the geniuses, my EPs, my directors, my producers in Singapore, for one, who had all the technology and were trialing systems over the last few months to make it happen. Um, you know, they, they sent me headphones and headsets and microphones and all the rest of it and dongles and stuff and programs to hook up here and there in my computer and my iPad. And we made it work. Uh, there's another one coming up, you know, that we're going to do three more, two more shows at the moment. And then there's a whole schedule. And I, I think it's just the sign of the times right now, Fabricio, that that's the way it has to be. And I'm glad that we worked it out. And all sports are doing this. If you're hearing live sports right now, uh, I'm going to tell you, 99, if not 100%, the commentators aren't there. They're not in the arena. They're at home. If you're watching soccer, they're at home or they're in a studio commentating it and the games are being beamed via satellite or via the internet to them. They're not at the arena.
0: How hard is it for you and how different is it for you not being there? Because, like, in fights and that, I've been in in quite a few corners when people are fighting, and it's very different to when you're watching from home because you see, like, there's a feel – in the fight and you feel things changing and you see the emotion um, in guys' faces that you don't necessarily get to see from on TV necessarily. So what's that like So the,
2: the, the, the whole COVID thing has presented a couple of different challenges. On February 28, one championship was the first major sports organisation to do closed stadium. Before the soccer did it, before um F1 did it, before tennis did it, Before anyone did it, one championship did it on February 28th at the Singapore Indoor Stadium. I was there in the stadium that time. So first time ever I've commentated inside an empty stadium. Strange experience, but we made it work and we did a kick-ass show. It came fantastically. But you missed the atmosphere of the crowd. Now, when we did the one last week that I was telling you about from Bangkok and I'm commentating at home, the pictures came in but it had no sound. So, I'm commentating vision only within no sound. I couldn't hear the referee. I couldn't hear the athletes hitting each other. I couldn't hear it. so it presented even more of a challenge to be able to not let that impact my excitement because my excitement my ability to relay the story and build up a fight with excitement is what you know characterizes me as a commentator and Listening to other sports commentators going through the same, you know, situation with their sports, I've heard a lot of commentators that used to be here in their presentation go down to here and sound a lot flatter because they haven't got that crowd noise. They haven't got those effects coming in. uh, Their vision may be muted as well, and they might be commentating from their lounge room or from their home study, you know, like I was. you can't let that affect you. You've got to bring it. You must bring it. And it's just experience. And again, it's something that I'm teaching and have taught myself is how to be able to bring it in any situation and how to converse with my co-commentator in Manila so we don't talk over each other. Because usually when you're ringside, I'll give him a tap on the leg or I'll pause and he'll know to come in off seeing me. But when he can't see me, how does he know where to come in? So having to rehearse with him beforehand, hey, Mitch, this is where you're going to come in. This is going to be the beats. This is where I'm going to throw to you and you come in at this portion and then it comes back to me instead of talking over each other. So there's a lot of little tidbits that are really important for the flow and the timing that you've got to work out in that that scenario. It, it's a whole different kettle of fish when there's A, if you're in the arena and there's no crowd, but B, if you're at home and there's no arena. All right.
0: Um, I want to ask you just uh, one about like there's so many iconic teams from K1, um, but uh, one thing that – because you did Badahari, uh, the voice versus Badahari, and he was going to kick you, but you didn't. You didn't take the kick. Uh, or you did, but it was like a fairy tap, eh? Like it wasn't – like he didn't kick like he kicked Mike Passenger. No,
2: yeah. I didn't take – I did not take it. Because he – I did not. What happened there? I'll tell you what – t- let me tell you about butter. I, I love butter, and over the years, Bada Hari Michael Chiavello has become the Muhammad Ali, Howard Cosell of kickboxing. I've commentated so many fights of his. I've interviewed him so many fights, uh, so many times around the world. So we have that relationship like Ali and Cosell used to have. And that's what people say. We like the Ali Cosell of of K1 days. But Bada has, as much as I love being around Bada and he's an awesome guy, there's also a darker side to him. I don't think it's any public secret of no. some of the indiscretions that, you know, has had over the years. So when I went to Amsterdam to interview him at his gym that day, uh, after the interview, and it was a sensational interview, I was going to take a kick on a kick shield from Butter because the impact of seeing a Butter kick on a kick shield, a leg kick, would have been sensational. As I'm holding the kick shield and Bata's getting set to do the kick, Mike Passini, a big Mike who's Butter's trainer, said to me, Mikey, do you have – health insurance and i laughed and go that's oh, no, all right he goes no no no, i'm serious do you have health insurance and i'm like mike what do you mean he goes listen i take barter's kicks every day i know how hard they are you've never taken one of barter's kicks he could hurt you so i look at barter and i'm like buddy you're gonna go easy right all, all i really need is the snap of the kick against the pad that'll be the sound we need for tv it'll look and sound good and Butter's like, "Hey, Mikey, Mikey, don't worry, don't worry. I'll go easy. I'll go easy." I look at Mike passing here. Mike's like, "I'm warning you." And I look at Butter, and I'm like, "Butter, man, seriously, you cannot kick me hard, dude. I, I can't take a proper kick. I'm not a fighter." Oh, Mikey, it's okay. Hold the pad. Hold the pad. It's okay. But then I saw a look in Butter's eyes that I've seen before. It's a look where a darkness takes over his eyes. It's like a it's like, a, his eyes go like a shark, man, like a great white shark, just like black and darkness. It's another being, another entity almost takes over. And I saw that in his eyes. Even though he's laughing, holding the pad on my leg, saying, Mike, you just take the kick. I saw it in his eyes. I said, no no way. Mike Passanier, you take the kick. So Mike Passanier took the kick and barter laid it in full pelt. I mean, the cow that kick shield was made from was screaming in its afterlife. That <laughs> kick was so hard. It would have broken my leg. So I love Butter. He's my man. He's my bro. But, man, he's, 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 he's got a dark side to him. So I, I didn't want any part of that kid. Can you speak a little bit about
0: um <clears throat> like that iconic team? Because they had that was Melvin Manhoof, Mike Passanier, Butter yeah. Hari. There was the dog that, chain that, that, with Melvin Manhoof and all of that.
2: Yeah. That was the main one. Uh, Melvin and Butter both out of Mike's Chimney in Amsterdam. uh, uh, my, uh they were just hardcore, man. Mike Mike Passanier is a lovable, big dude. Oh, lovable, huggable human being, you know, happy. But in the gym, he trains these guys. The way he psychologically molds these guys, they're like ticking time bombs ready to explode. And you see it when they'd walk out to the ring. Um, YouTube it, a Melvin oh, Metal entrance. a million times. A yeah, entrance. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. right. Uh, they come out and no one ever knew. It was always a secret. It was like the secret 11 herbs and spices at KFC. No one told you what Mike Passanier ever said to Barra or Melvin. But as soon as they came on stage, they'd look at Mike, they'd be this close to him, and Mike would be like <laughs> saying something we couldn't hear over the music and then slap him in the face and they'd take it and they get G'd up and you'd see that switch flick and they'd come to the ring and Melvin used to have the dog collar around his neck and he'd come freaking stomp into the ring and butter just be struck into the ring and they would be almost inhuman. The way that they were revved up, they were amped. Nobody knows what Mike ever said to them. Mike would never reveal it. Nobody in K1 knew. I would ask Butter, I would ask Melvin, they go, We can't tell you. It's private gym business. Can't say. But whatever it was, they were amped for it. You know, there's a switch these guys flick. Um I, I've seen it, man. I've been covering fight sports since 1992. I've seen it so many times. You recognize it. And I, I reckon 99% of these guys will tell you there's a switch they flick going from normal, normal race FO, all right, to fighter race FO. A switch has to be flicked. And the dangerous thing is, Fabrizio, is that when they don't flick the switch, that's when they're in trouble. When I interviewed Sugar Ray Leonard, for The Voice Versus at Sugar Ray's house in the Pacific Palisades back in 2015, I think it was. I'd spoke to Sugar Ray Leonard about the switch. How did you know? Did you know? I said to him, did you know before a fight that you were going to win it? He said, yes, I did. "How? How? How would you know that? He goes, Michael, in the change room, I would look at myself in the mirror. If I saw Sugar Ray Leonard looking back at me, I knew I was going to win. If I saw Ray Leonard looking back at me, I knew I was going to lose. I said, but what would happen if, what was it like if you saw Ray Leonard and then you walked out to the ring? He said, Michael, it was like walking to the gallows. That will stick with me forever. And I think that most fighters Fabrizio go through something similar whether it's looking in a mirror whether it's a mental switch whether it's hearing the right bit of music that triggers them whether it's getting their rest in someone like Dennis Alexio Alexio used to sleep leading up to his fight They had to shake him in the back room and wake him up to go out to the ring so there's a switch that they flick and sometimes you can visibly see the switch being flicked and like i said butter when he was kicking that pad and i was going to hold it i could see the switch in his eyes he took on beast mode he took on fight mode he took on devil mode and i you know i don't want to be around him when he switches to that mode no, you, wouldn't. <laughs> um,
0: you know uh, what what's some of the, the most memorable craziest fights or a fight that, that you've called like that that sticks to you like like when I say that, like uh, word association kind of thing, like straight away.
2: Straight away, straight away, straight away. Mark Hunt versus Ray Sefo. Uh, I think you spoke to Ray at length about it and you showed clips of it in the podcast yep. with Ray, which was brilliant. Um, that was the first time I ever commentated K1 overseas. That was my big opportunity. So to, that was the night. 2001, Fukuoka, Japan, for the first time commentating K1 in Japan. Are you kidding me? To get that fight, the greatest heavyweight fight in K1 history, they call it was amazing, off the charts. Ray won that fight, but he couldn't continue in the tournament because you'll see in triple vision. So Mark got through on a second chance, knocked out Adam Watt in the final, or TKO'd him, went on to the Grand Prix, and we all know history after that. Um, I feel – I don't think Ray will be upset at me saying this. I feel after that fight with Mark Hunt, Ray won the fight with Mark. Let's not forget that, but Ray was never the same. Ray was never the same after that. The year before that, raid made it all the way to the K1 Grand Prix final, losing the final. That year, had he not suffered what he did against Mark, had he not had triple vision, had he gone on to the final, he would have beaten Adam Watt. I reckon he would have gone through the K1 and won the Grand Prix himself that year. Just wasn't to be, though. He was never the same after that. How brutal was that fight live? Because when you watch it, like – it was brutal. It was brutal, man. Two two guys who weighed 130, 120 kilos. Not, 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 not just two regular guys. Two Samoans. Samoans, Polynesians, have the highest bone density of any people on earth. The way that Ray and Mark dropped their hands and were gifting each other free shots to the chin, are you kidding me? It was pulverizing to watch. It was electrifying. It was gripping to watch. Nothing like it. Somebody talk about fights that come to mind immediately. That one. That one straight away. And another one Mike Zambides versus Chahid.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to
2: look it up on YouTube. No, no, it's horrible. It's a sensation. I watched it today,
0: actually, before a game.
2: It was K1 Max in, in, in Seoul, Korea. Me and Ray Sefo commentating. Man, those guys went out a hammer and tong. And the commentary for that one was deliberately as excessive, over-exaggerate, over-exaggerated, off-the-charts commentary as you could get. Like I said, it was K1. We were allowed to do whatever we wanted. And for that one, we went all out with the, the jokes and the action and the over a top and me saying, I think I'm going to have a heart attack and you know, shit just got real, all these phrases that sort of became iconic in that fight. That was just toe to toe, one of the greatest battles that's ever been caught on film, I think. Mike Zambides versus Chahid was incredible. Um, man, Fabricio, you asked me this. And like I said, having commentated over 7,000 fights, course, yeah. I'm going to make so many people upset not mentioning more of them. But you asked me which ones leap to mind. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. The first two of those, Hunt versus Cepho and Chahid versus Zambides, have to be the, the first two. And if you any others, like the third place, you know what? Um, there was a great one in Myanmar for one championship Ong Lan Sung versus Ken Hasegawa, number one, in 2018. Um, this was one of the greatest battles ever, fi- almost five rounds. In Myanmar, in front of 10,000 people in the Tuanar Indoor Stadium, with on live TV at the same time. In Myanmar, country of 55 million people, where Onla and Sung is more popular than Potter McGregor in Ireland. Yeah, we're, we're gonna have Cristiano him on the Renata.
0: podcast, I think. We're we're trying to get him on the podcast. What's that? We're trying to get Ongla oh, good son luck. on. I the... hope you do. I hope yeah.
2: you do. O- Onla? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Onla's my man, he's awesome. But he is bigger in Myanmar, just to let people know, he is bigger in Myanmar than Cristiano Ronaldo in Portugal, than um oh, who? Regular Ronaldo in, in Brazil, okay, bigger than, uh, bigger than LeBron in, in, in the USA. Okay, he's just bigger. He's huge. You walk the streets in Myanmar, every Buddhist monk knows him, every uh, restaurateur knows him, waiter and waitresses know him, all the military know him, all the politicians all want to be a part of him. Everyone who walks through customs, they know him. One in three people in Myanmar, one in three people watching TV were watching that fight. In a country of 55 million, that is massive. Huge. And in the fifth round, he fires this uppercut from hell, like a laser-guided missile to the jaw that drops Hasegawa after the most brilliant four-and-a-half-round battle you ever see. For me, it was the fight. It was the night. It was my commentary. I won the Asian Television Award for that commentary, which was like the Asian Emmy Award, you know, for that specific commentary. Everything came together. So another one of my most memorable. And there's a chapter on it in the book as well um, that you can read about. So another just memorable, memorable contest. Um, man, Mark Hunt versus Labana 2001 Grand Prix. Like I said earlier, that 16, 17 punch knockout combination that Mark, you know, dropped Labana with that sent him on his way to winning the Grand Prix after you know beating Lecco and then beating Filio. Um so many tremendous fights I've been so privileged to call in kickboxing in Muay Thai in K1 in professional wrestling in boxing everything you know
0: Um let's uh this weekend there's a big fight Kovalev versus Miechich um I don't know if you follow uh, the, the UFC as well um what do you think for for that fight like what let's just have a bit of a chat about that i suppose
2: I still follow UFC um probably not as passionately or as dedicatedly as I used to because most of my time is consumed, you know, obviously with one championship now. Um, but Daniel's a guy I've always been a big fan of. I commentated Daniel. You know, Daniel fought in Australia. Not a lot of people yeah, know Yeah, 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 Lucas Sydney. Brown.
0: I was there. Yeah, yeah. Many, I was there.
2: You were there? Yeah, yeah. Many, many, many years ago. Hammer and I commentated him many years ago. And Daniel's always had a soft spot for Australia in his heart since then. Then later he became the king of the cage. Heavyweight champion in America. I think he won the title was in Reno, and I commentated his fight when he won the the, the King of the Cage title in, in the US. So I've always had a soft spot for Daniel. He's one of the greatest human beings, one of the real gentlemen of the sport. Great guy. I hope he beats Miocic. Um, but then again, you look, you know, you look on paper and you look at Stipe and 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 his results that he's gotten, and a lot of people are factoring him, saying a win here makes him the greatest heavyweight of all time. Okay, that's what a lot of people are saying. Um, And that argument's been going around Twitter the last few days. You know, who is the greatest heavyweight of all time? And a lot of people weighing in and saying Stipe Miocic is the the greatest of all time if he beats Cormier. Um, On paper, you might say Stipe, but your heart, I I go with Daniel. You know, let's see if Daniel's got that one last big performance left in him to, you know, he's already cemented his legacy. I'm not going to say to cement his legacy, but – if this is going to be maybe the last one we see, let's 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 see a war. How do you see it going down? It'll go down. Yeah. On the ground. Oh, you it'll, think it'll go down at some? Yeah, at some stage, at some stage it'll go down. Uh, man. I want to say that in my mind, I'm seeing Daniel taking the big tall beam pole down, getting on top of him, pounding away on him. Grinding away on Stipe. That's what I'm seeing in my mind. There's a hundred different scenarios that could happen. You know, Stipe could keep him at, at length with his reach, obviously. You know, it's hard to get on the inside once he starts using his reach. Somehow I see Daniel getting on the inside, maybe getting on top of him, maybe grinding away at him on the ground. It's I think it's going to be a, a war of attrition. I don't think there's, to, there's not going to be a quick finish, I don't think. It may even go the distance. Yeah, it's it's a hard one, man. You
0: know who else we're we talking to to get on this podcast? Like on a on a
2: is Martin Nguyen from One FC as well. Oh, Martin, knockout king of one championship, lovely guy. Um, you know Martin's become a real different beast since joining Sanford MMA, training alongside Ong Lan Sung, Henry Hooft, those guys in Florida. You know he travels back and forth, but his camp is in, always in Sanford now, and he prepares eight ten weeks out from a match. Um, Since changing camps, Martin's a whole different martial arts monster, a whole different breed of animal. Like, he comes in to wreck people. And the way he's been wrecking people since the change has been phenomenal. The way he wrecked um, uh, uh, um, the Japanese dude, I forget his name, but the way he wrecked Jadamba, you know, the flying knee, I mean, Martin's just vicious. And a lot of people are are quick to say, you know, Australian world champions in MMA and just look at UFC, but – Martin was a two-division champion, don't forget. Yeah. Martin is still a, you know, still a champion in one division, had two division championships, was the first to do that. Went for a third. Okay. First Australian to do that. Went for a third and came very close to it. I think could go for a third and could possibly get it if he wants to have another go at it. And the guy Martin, he lost
0: to when he went incredible. for the third is, is not a nobody. Like that guy, Bibiano is like a, a legend, man.
2: One of the legends, man. One of the all-time greats, Bibiano Fernandes. Longest reigning champion in one championship history, former dream champion as well, been around for a long time. A training partner of Demetrius Johnson, arguably the the greatest of all time, pound for pound. I mean, yeah. So Martin needs to get a lot more media than than, than he's getting because people tend to look at UFC and not see the accomplishments of Aussies in one championship, most notably Martin Nguyen. Absolutely. Did you were you in Japan when um.
0: When I can't remember if it was the organization when you were there, if you were there or not. Um, when Bibiano fought Joe Warren and when he fought Kid Yamamoto, or was that a different? Yep.
2: You, you yep. were there. Did you that call in those dream. fights? Did you? I believe they were both in Dream. Yeah, I, I think I called both of them. Um, I remember calling, yeah, I'm pretty sure I called both of them. I commentated Bibiano to his Dream World title. Um, Man, there were so many. I remember being reunited with Bibiano in 2017 in Macau when I started commentating with one, which brought me back to the Asian region. And seeing Bibiano there in the Venetian uh, casino in Macau, and we looked at each other from afar, and we, it was almost like a romance film, man, like slow motion running <laughs> towards each other, you know, and embrace each other. And it's like – Chevalho, I can't believe you're here in one championship. When I heard this, it was amazing. Finally, we're back together again. I'm like, Bibi, we're back together, man, where we belong. Because I commentated so many of his matches in Dream, and, you know, we became this really cool tandem. And there's just some guys over the years, Fabrizio, that you hear people say to you, you hear fans say that when they see those people fight, if they're not hearing my voice commentate them, it's not the same. I get people say that all the time about a Harris fights. You know, oh, we love watching Bada, but without hearing you commentate Bada, it's not the same. When you don't commentate Minua Man, it's not the same. When you don't commentate Bibiano Fernandez, it's not the same, you know. So to be reunited with Bibi, who's a gentleman, and there's someone that you should also talk to because there's a guy who grew up in the Amazon jungle in the most abject poverty with his auntie, having to forage in the forest for shelter, had to hunt animals for food, okay? Suffered um, um, malaria twice and almost died as like a 10-year-old, okay? Went to the city and was washing car windows to make a living barefoot outside an MMA, a BJJ gym that he happened to look inside the window of, and that's how he got into BJJ. It's the most incredible story. And when you speak to Bibiano, he goes on these levels with you. He will break down the world and unravel the universe and talk to you about dimensions and spirituality and philosophy. It's like you've gone back, you know, 3,000 years and you're you're talking to Pythagoras and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and these great philosophers. He is the most incredible brain in the martial arts industry.
0: I definitely would like to speak to him. I'd, I'd, I would 100% will have Bibiano Fernandez as a, um, someone I'd, I'd want to get in contact with for sure, um, and I will. I 100% will. Um, I want to ask you one thing because we're going to kind of wrap up now just because it looks like we we'll would talk – what happened? Dave, what happened? Oh, it's me. Uh, sorry about that. I knocked the – the cable with my hands because I talk with my. The hands. amount
2: of times I've done that myself yeah. on air, trust me, trust me. <laughs> um, I guess the one thing I was going to say, being that you've
0: you've been the author of several books, um, what books are would you say uh, are the ones that have influenced you the most? Books that you've either read or given as gifts or anything like that.
2: Uh... are you a big reader? I am I, – I, I love reading. I read a lot, um, especially since i got a Kindle. Man, that thing is the best investment ever because I just read book after book after book. I chop and change. I mostly read a lot of nonfiction. Uh, sometimes I'll read fiction, but it's going to be really good fiction to get me, really good fiction. I read one during isolation called Exit West, um, which was a really good novel, very different, um, but mostly nonfiction. Uh I read a couple of good biographies, autobiographies. Andre Agassi's one called Open is tremendously good. Yeah, I've read that. Very inspirational. Um, I read that before I wrote Goodnight Irene. It gave me a lot of really good ideas about looking at my own life uh, before writing about it in Good Night, Irene. Uh, probably not – if there's a novel I recommend, um, I always – the only novel I've ever read six times, I think seven times in my life, and it's one you no one's ever heard of. And it's one I read at high school. It's called Centerline by Joyce Sweeney. But there's something about this novel about four teenage boys who are abused by their dad, and uh, so they run away from home, and they fend for themselves on the road. Um, they've aged like 16, 15, 14, 13, uh, four brothers. It's called Centerline. If you can find it these days, it's from like nineteen. 19- 84, and I still have it on my bookshelf. I found a copy on eBay a few years ago, an original copy, and I bought it, and I, I still – I read it again last year, so maybe I've read it eight times. Um, you know, there's some books that have stuck with me. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm really eclectic with my mix, Fabrizio. It's like, man, during isolation, let me tell you, books I've read nonfiction, I'm reading one at the moment on Seinfeld, okay, called Seinfeldia, about Seinfeld. I read one on Pavarotti written by his manager okay, about his years with Pavarotti. Um, I read the Andre Agassi book again, Open. Uh, I read one on Friends, the TV show Friends. Then I read four professional wrestling books. I love pro wrestling. Uh, The latest one I'm reading is Jim Ross's Under the Black Hat. Um, So it's just, you know, it's a real mix. I I read uh, uh, a soccer book called Forza Italia, um, another soccer book called World in Motion, so, yeah, it's just a real mix of what I feel like on the day. I'll grab a book, grab my Kindle, download, and, and start reading. Oh, awesome. Um, Michael, man, we won't take any more of your time, but thank you so much for doing
0: this. We appreciate it so much. Um, thank you so much, man, and I hope you stay safe with COVID and look after your family and all the best with uh, one and all your future endeavours. And definitely
2: please buy his book, people. Good Night, Irene, available 1st of October. Um, Indeed. Thank you, Fabricio Grange TV. It's been great, mate, to uh, finally come on the show. Uh, love the guests. You know, you sent me a couple of links that I've been uh, I've been watching on YouTube and some of these shows are just terrific, particularly the one you do with Ray Seppo um, was one of my favourites and Ray such a great guest. Thank you for having me on and, uh, folks, um, you know, keep tuning in to Fabricio. It does a great job and uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye.